is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. After uh, two years of covering the pandemic, we are focusing on what's now the biggest story in the world, the war in Ukraine. Today, we talked to a Ukrainian who lives in the capital, Kiev, and says he will not be leaving. The U.S. House of Representatives approves a package that includes billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. More major companies pulling out of Russia. And the Ukrainian owner of a Russian restaurant in New York is dealing with hate mail, vandalism, and a lot more than that. We start with Kirill, who lives in the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev, says he isn't leaving, even as more than uh, two million people have fled his country. Spent close to two weeks in a bomb shelter. Now he's helping his neighbors. He's making aid packages. Uh, First, if you can, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm 29. I'm living in Kiev almost for uh, 13 years. Uh... Uh, before the war, I was a film critic, uh, so right now I can't really do my job, uh, and that's uh, kind of painful. Not painful as uh, people who really struggle in, in uh, Mariupol, in Kharkiv, in Akhtirka. These cities uh, now are destroyed by Russian forces, by missiles and uh, airplanes, so... Uh, I'm staying in Kiev. Yeah, I lived uh, in the shelter almost uh, two weeks. Uh, right now, uh, I live in apartment. Uh, the situation is in Kiev is uh, a little bit easier right now than it was before. So uh, it's kind of safer, at least for the moment. Uh, I, what I can say about myself, I moved in Kiev in 2009, uh, to study philosophy and, uh, in 2014, I graduated from, uh, from my university. Tell me about the, the couple weeks and the bomb shelter. Where was that? What was that like? Was this one of the train stations? Was this an every night kind of thing because of the bombings? It's, take me through what that was like for you for that long uh, of a period of time. Uh, it was uh, uh, my bomb shelter was in the underground parking uh, near the apartment of my friend. It was a uh, quite good shelter. Uh, to compare to other uh, other buildings, so we feel safe there. Uh, it was warm. We even have Wi-Fi to work or to connect with our uh, relatives, our friends. So we stayed in touch, and also we uh, kind of helping each other. But uh, I think the last week. Uh, uh, most of the people uh, just moved to, from Kiev, so uh, not much people left in the shelter. And actually, like last two, three days uh, in the shelter was only me and my friends, uh, like four of us. Is it is it nerve wracking? It must be to walk around your city uh with, I mean, you hear explosions occasionally, right? And and there are no Russian soldiers within the center part of Kiev, but they're very close. Uh, yeah, they're very close. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, first days was really nervous. We, uh, in the first day, like everyone was in apathy uh, and uh, 
uh, doesn't really know what to do. Uh, after that, you kind of um, hear explosions, uh, but you already understand what they are, how uh, long away they from you. Uh, so you kind of understand, is it close or is it somewhere far away? Uh, I didn't hear like huge explosions uh, near uh, my shelter. Only once I uh, hear like really, uh, re really close to us. Uh, it was kind of scary. Like it was uh, first time that I really scared about the explosion. The sky, it was at night. Uh, uh, sky become red from black to red. And I just run away to the shelter uh, yeah, that's that was kind of scary. And uh, I think at the third day of war, we, uh, uh, me and my friends, we kind of go to the apartment because we need to wash our teeth and uh, do the other stuff uh, to feel uh, like a human, at least uh, in the small things. So uh, I was I was standing in uh, the balcony and I was uh, I, I just saw uh, the rocket that coming to the uh, living building. Uh, you kind of uh, you can find the Im images uh, of this building like four floors just destroyed. Uh, I've seen it uh, not only in pictures. We go there by the car and uh, I saw it yeah that's uh, uh, looking really stressful disgusting and uh, what Russians doing to our country it's just horrible we mentioned how many people have have left and, and you mentioned too that you were one of the only ones still in in the shelter you were in but you are pretty intent on staying in Kiev right and, and why is that yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to stay in Kiev. I have uh, doubts, like maybe in first and second day, but uh, I have option to go to the Lviv uh, or other cities uh, in the uh, western Ukraine. Uh, but Kiev is my second home right now uh, after my hometown. And I don't want to leave. This is my city. I love it. Uh, and I can't go out of there because uh, that's uh, I'm a part of it. And uh, my city is part of me right now. So I, I can't go. Let me ask you a, uh, maybe a very difficult, maybe impossible question for you to answer, Kirill. Uh, are you more afraid of the possibility which is a real possibility in your country at the moment. Are you more afraid of the possibility of dying or more afraid of the possibility of a total Russian occupation of your country? Well, uh, of course I'm afraid uh, about dying. Like uh, uh, this, I think uh, uh, every human being is afraid uh, in some in some point of his life. Uh, I think uh, the war in Ukraine is already like for eight years. So, yeah, but uh, right now it's a full scale, a scaled war. Uh, 
But I'm not afraid about uh, Russian occupation, full Russian occupation, because I, I think it's impossible. Even if they do this uh, for our country, like how long they keep it this way? One day, two days, uh, Ukrainians, Ukrainian people never stop. They can't conquer us. Uh, the only option, and I see, and I see that it's happening in some cities, and I see that it can happen to some, uh, most of our people. That's Putin and uh, Russia just start destroying us, like it was in Syria. Uh, they just uh, destroying the cities, and uh, because they can't win. And I, uh, I'm honestly believing in it. So I'm, I'm not afraid about Russian occupation because uh, they can't do this. Your plan for your time while you're staying in Kiev to help? I mean, what have you been been doing in terms of in terms of the effort? Because everybody we talk to is is saying that they're playing some kind of part, and I think that's also what's what's so inspiring. Everybody's doing something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's like I never felt uh, this inspiration and uni unity uh, in my country, in my people. Like everyone is standing for everyone. And uh, as for me, uh, right now I'm helping in the volunteer center. Uh, we helping with the food, with clothes, with uh, medicine. Uh, and other other useful stuff like uh, yesterday uh, there was a lot of refugees from uh, Irpin, uh, uh, Irpin town. It's near the Kiev, so uh, a lot of refugees. We just sorting uh, clothes for them, sorting medicaments uh, for them. And uh, when you're doing this, uh, you uh, not feeling that you uh, useless. You feeling that you doing uh, your job, your uh, that's your mission, if I can say it. And uh, yeah, by doing this, uh, you kind of making Ukraine great, and uh, you understanding that we will win because everyone is inspired right now, and uh, everyone is united. That's uh, Kirill. He lives in Kiev, and he's and he's staying put there. Kirill, thank you for talking to us. Stay safe. We hope we can speak again soon. Throughout the U.S., people are coming together to show solidarity with Ukraine. Many people are shopping and eating at Ukrainian businesses to show their support. What about uh, Russian restaurants? Vlada von Schatz owns the Russian Samovar restaurant in New York City, says she's getting hate mail. People are canceling reservations left and right. She spoke with Bridget Quinn on 1010 Wins in New York. I just hang up the phone with another cancellation for 20 people for tomorrow. And, and what are uh, people saying to you when they cancel? Well, there's numerous reasons. People don't want to uh, go out in the time of war when they have relatives sitting in the bunkers. Uh, that's one of the reasons. It's just not a time to celebrate anything right now. <laughs> and of course, the Russophobia that's, that we're experiencing right now is a big factor. Right, because you're a, a Russian restaurant, we, but we are, but you you have Ukrainians working for you, correct? Absolutely, we mm -hmm. have many Ukrainian employees that we are helping and 
nurturing through this crisis. My husband is Ukrainian. My children, I have Ukrainian, half Russian. It's a it's a personal tragedy, and it's very difficult to to comprehend what's going on right now in Ukraine. And we would love to do anything we can to help them. Of course, and 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 Vlada, tough for you as a restaurant owner to convey that to potential customers, right? I mean, they might just say, "Oh, it's a Russian restaurant." Exactly. This mm. is exactly what's happening. Our door has been kicked in. Our sign's been kicked. Um, we get hate emails. We get prank phone calls. Uh, I've been working with Google to remove numerous. Uh, one-star reviews on our site from people that have never been to the restaurant. They just, uh, I understand where it's coming from. I, I understand the bias. I understand the Russophobia. But there are people behind this that are suffering here in America. We employ Ukrainian, you know, people that have family in Ukraine that need to work, that need to send money over there. It's a circle, um, we are very much against the war. We are caught in this uh, situation. And my mind understands, but my heart breaks. Yeah. You know, three, three generations of working very, very hard to make it. We came in as refugees ourselves in 1977. Right. And, and, and Vlada, I understand that also in the late 80s when the Cold War was ending, People came to your restaurant as as a haven, as a, a place Absolutely. where they could celebrate freedom. Absolutely. We've always been there for everyone, uh, ex-Soviet Union republics. Nobody ever paid any attention to where you came from. You just escaped communism. You escaped the aggressor. You were here. This is your place of a haven, a little bit of entertainment, vodka, borscht. All of that put together, new friends, old friends. It, it's, we've always been there for, this, for the community, for, for everyone. And now uh, things are changing. Uh, I understand. I understand what's going on, but it's still very hard to accept. What is your message to any New Yorkers who might be listening to us and to our conversation and considering whether to have a meal at your restaurant, some of our on West 52nd? Please remember that behind every meal, there are people that make that meal, and they come from different places, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Mexico, uh, Russia, all of that. All of these people need support. And just the word, just because we have the word Russian in front of our name, that does not mean we are pro-war. We're very much against it. And uh, we would like to continue supporting our community Everyone that ever escaped communism and is now escaping Putin, we're here for you. If anything we could do, we would very much like to help. Vladivan Schatz, third generation owner of the Russian and, and Ukrainian restaurant Samovar yes. on West 52nd. Vlada, we thank you so much. Coming right up after a short break, the U.S. sending billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. But how will that money be spent? The U.S. is set to send close to $14 billion in aid to Ukraine, but it's not as simple as it sounds. The Pentagon shut down a plan to transfer Polish fighter jets to Ukraine. 
Russia will likely see any kind of direct involvement by the U.S. as an escalation. So how can we help? Jeff McCausland, CBS military consultant, retired U.S. Army colonel. So, Jeff, we're not putting boots on the ground. Uh, what can the administration do? Well, we certainly need to intensify what we're doing already and talk about that, and delivering particularly anti-tank weapons and, and shoulder-fired air defense weapons and more air defense weapons to the Ukrainians. But again, what you have to know is that you're going to deliver equipment they can absorb, that they can use. You can't give them, you know, a brand new F-16. They got nobody trained to fly it or a new F-35. That might sound very cool, but just doesn't do them any good. At the same time, we got to remember the United States is providing assistance to them in terms of both cyber offense and cyber defense. We're doing cyber offense right now against Russian networks, and we're assisting the Ukrainians in cyber defense and holding off Russian attacks on them. And thirdly, of course, is intelligence. We're providing them more and more, hopefully, real-time intelligence so they can target Russian movement in and around Ukraine. We might think about transferring to them what I would argue would be uh, shore-to-sea type of missiles as well so that down in the south, Ukrainian forces can actually encounter some of the Russian Navy vessels offshore and some of the arguments that the Russians may be preparing to do an amphibious assault in and around Odessa in the uh, Black Sea area. So do we know that at least some of that is going to go over? And if we talk about the, the javelins and the anti-tanks, I mean, that, according to the video today, is is getting used because we saw that, that Russian convoy of tanks in the middle of the neighborhood, and uh, they basically took it out. Exactly right. And that's going on, and we've got to keep those supply lines going. In essence, what's happening flying into Poland is probably one of the biggest airlifts that we have done uh, since the Berlin airlift back in the late 1940s in terms of the amount of cargo aircraft that are flowing in to deliver all that hardware from the United States or other points in Europe. And our European allies, oh, by the way, are contributing that weaponry as well. But it's going to need it mean that we also need to keep those supply lines open. One of the worries I had, quite candidly, if we had transferred these aircraft from Poland to Ukraine, is the Russians might have used that as an argument then to escalate and say, okay, what we need to do, we, the Russians, is cut off that line, that, that uh, ground line across the border from Poland to Ukraine. And they've got forces in Belarus as far as Brest that they might move south, interdict those lines, and now we can't deliver those things we need. To, we know they need even more than 20-, 30-year-old airplanes. So we have this, as you know, uh, huge convoy sitting not too far uh, outside of uh, Kiev. It's been there for quite some time, and uh, every day... We keep talking about and I keep reading about everyone guessing, well, what, what's happening? Is it because they were out of supplies? Is it low morale? Are they regrouping? What do you think is going on? Because they clearly have the, the, the numbers of people, if they wanted to, to push into downtown Kiev. They're like 15 miles away. It's the clearest evidence I have seen just how incompetent the Russians are militarily, that particular convoy. I mean, I commanded troops in combat. If one of my platoon leader had put vehicles that close together, I would have relieved him right on the spot. That looks like they're moving administratively on Russian territory and not moving in a combat zone, for goodness sake, where they are enormously vulnerable. You don't even see them when they stop herringbone the vehicles so they can provide local defense, putting troops out to give them flank security. You don't see evidence of helicopters overhead provide overwatch or positioning mobile air defense along the way to protect that convoy. It's just sitting there. And most of those vehicles now, I'm being told, are likely to have become disabled. Tires are flat. What does a soldier of any nationality do 
if they're sitting in a vehicle in the wintertime. I'll tell you what they do. They keep the engine running. So those vehicles are all probably sitting with empty gas tanks right now. So if there was ever a more temp- uh, testimony to Russian incompetence, poor le- leadership, poor discipline, and poor tactics, it's that convoy. Your thoughts on the uh, death totals for the Russian side that CBS was reporting yesterday afternoon, which were very, very high for, for such a, a short period of time. Yeah, the, the significant Russian casualties. I mean, Pentagon sources are talking in the four to 5,000 range. Ukrainians obviously saying 10,000. There's no doubt about it. There have been significant Russian casualties. And that's going to start putting enormous pressure on Mr. Putin, who's already said, well, we're not going to send conscripts in. That's a lie. They've already done that. And we know a lot of these soldiers don't know where they are, poorly trained, and they're basically being sent in to be ground up uh, by the Ukrainians. As that, as that uh, continues, unfortunately, I think we're going to see the Russians do what they're doing right now and not, as, not assault the cities because they know urban fighting is a meat grinder. They're going to stand back at some distance, particularly with artillery and rockets, less so aircraft, and just crush these places like they did in Chechnya, like they did in Syria, and try to break not only the Ukrainian military, but crush the will of the population. Jeff McCausland, CBS military consultant and retired U.S. Army colonel. Jeff, thanks. Every day, more major companies from McDonald's to Ikea are shutting down operations in Russia, at least for now. And this comes on top of economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and much of the West. Russian officials admit the country is hurting economically, but do the companies and the sanctions have the power to change the course of the war? Will it deter Vladimir Putin? Daniel Treisman, expert on Russian economics and politics. Uh, How are the people in Russia feeling about all this? The people in the cities who have been living basically a middle class life quite connected to the world have been uh you know consuming these international products eating at mcdonald's uh buying buying furniture at ikea and uh it's quite traumatic for them to be cut off from these international brands uh, but also the people outside the big cities uh in the industrial uh, heartland are going to feel this too because their factories are going to have to stop producing because they can't get the inputs, the the, uh, computer chips and various other uh, components. So uh, the whole economy really is is, uh, uh, staggering at this point, and we're going to see more. Is there an analogous situation? I can't think of one, actually, where corporations, uh, I mean, governments, yes, imposing sanctions. We've done that uh, against Iran, against North Korea. But uh, for the corporate world to say, uh, we're out of here, how often has that happened? Well, it's it's rare, but uh, one parallel would be the embargo on South Africa during the apartheid era. Uh, there was great uh, pressure from uh, from the general public in many countries uh, for for companies to disinvest from South Africa. And uh, and that had an effect there. It, it increased the sense of isolation, especially for an uh, upwardly mobile, growing middle class. Uh, becoming middle class is really becoming plugged into the world, uh, in a sense. And uh, it's uh, demoralizing uh, to suddenly not be able to buy all those products which the rest of the world uh, is consuming. So South Africa is one example. Um, This sort of thing tends to take a long time uh, to have a major impact because it has to uh, it has to not just affect people, but uh, stimulate some sort of uh, organized reaction. Um, But uh, that's what we're beginning to see. 
in Russia. Right. I was going to say that is the tough part, right? Especially in Russia is the organized reaction because uh, you organize and you react and you can go to jail. Right. It's Of course, it's it's only logical that the uh, state, the Kremlin, would, would use uh, repression on a, on a much more uh, on a broader scale and uh, more extreme kinds of repression than they were doing before. And uh, frankly, it takes uh, enormous courage these days in Russia to go out and protest. People are arrested almost immediately. And uh, tens of thousands have already been uh, arrested and detained, at least, or or charged with criminal offenses for, for protesting. What do you think the end game is for these major corporations? I mean, many of them spent uh, years, sometimes decades, negotiating different agreements to get their companies to operate inside first the Soviet Union, then Russia. Now they're pulling out or closing down. Uh, what's their end game? Well, it's stunning how fast this has been happening and uh, what costs the companies seem ready to absorb. So BP uh, walking away from Russia. Uh, that's uh, putting $20 billion or more at risk. And Shell also, we've seen uh, uh, ending its cooperation with, with uh, Russian partners. Um, but I think uh, we don't know. Some of the companies are, are not so much liquidating their uh, partnerships and their involvement as just putting it on hold, uh, ceasing operations for the, for the moment. And uh, I imagine they could go back in quickly if this thing ever gets resolved. Um, but uh, for others, uh, it's there are big transaction costs in getting out and there would be in getting back in. So it looks it looks pretty serious, at least uh, in the medium medium run. Um, and uh, in Russia now, the government has uh, said that they're going to nationalize uh, companies, uh, Western companies, assets uh, in the country if those companies uh, leave uh, and uh, uh, that, again, would make companies in the future very reluctant uh, to get back into that market unless they were fully compensated. Yeah, we, we pay attention to the language, right? When people say what they're doing, it's either I'm going to stop new investments sometimes and, and then still keep what I've got there. Or some of them on the complete opposite are just, uh, to your point, you know what, I'm going to write it down as a loss and just walk away. And that's that's what's going to happen here. Yeah. And it comes at an interesting time for the oil companies, obviously, because they're at the same time, they're trying to move to a clean energy, uh, a new world uh, with new lines of business. Uh, so uh, perhaps they can they can see it in that context and reduce uh, investments in, in oil and, and, and dirty fuels uh, with all the political problems that involves uh, as part of their transition uh, to a new business model. But obviously, it's huge amounts of money, and uh, it's just stunning how fast these decisions have been made. Daniel Treisman, expert on Russian economics and politics, political science professor at UCLA. The war is taking a toll on the mental health of Americans. Now, that's the finding of a new survey from the American Psychological Association. More than 80 percent of Americans say the war, along with inflation, are significant sources of stress right now. Now, that's the highest number of people reporting stress about any issue in the 15 years since the survey began. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.